Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. This show features conversations between diverse technology professionals discussing women in the industry, cutting-edge innovations, the future of work, deeply technical topics, and the ways that we can all work together to make the world a more inclusive place. We hope you enjoy, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, and comment. It's time for Women Who Code Conversations, a segment to hear from top technology professionals sitting down with a Women Who Code member to discuss real-world experiences in the industry, what they've learned over the course of their career, and what they think is coming next for tech. Today, we have a very special segment for Black History Month, featuring a conversation between two Women Who Code headquarter leaders. We have Samaria Rooks, Women Who Code's Chief People and Inclusion Officer, and Lise Robinson, Women Who Code's Chief Financial Officer. They'll be discussing their career journey to the C-suite as Black women and the importance of intention in having a positive community. Hello, my name is Samaria Rooks. I am the Chief People and Inclusion Officer here at Women Who Code, and today I have with me I'm Lise Robinson. I'm the Chief Financial Officer at Women Who Code, and we're celebrating Women Code Turns 10 and Black History Month. Yeah, so we're just going to jump right in. Um, I have been with Women Who Code since 2020. I started right at the top of the pandemic. Literally, my interview was with Joey and Elena right the week that they sent out, like everything's going to shut down. So I interviewed with them. I actually was bike riding pulled over and chatted with them. And after I left that conversation, I was really motivated about, you know, being a part of this mission, to be honest and being frank, I had never heard of Women Who Code before that day um, when she first reached out. And I was like, oh my God. So I was frantically looking at the website, trying to learn as much as I could um, but the crazy thing is all my friends knew about Women Who Code, and so they actually helped me, um, and it just made me want to be a part of this mission so much more after leaving that conversation, and I was just so excited. I literally went to write my thank you note, and Elena was sending me an offer letter, so it was, for me, it was destiny. Um, I have a more intense story about like kind of how everything happened, but I just knew it was like purposeful for me to be here. So what about you, Lisa? What made you interested in Women Who Code? Well, similar to you, Samaria, I, I had heard about Women Who Code, but didn't know as much about Women Who Code as uh, my uh, friends who had known about Women Who Code. And so I did a quick research, actually, when you reached out to me to let me know about the opportunity. And when I researched Women Who Code and I saw that they were that the organization is a civil social um, organization. So it's not just a technology-based organization, but it's an organization that, uh, that provides an avenue, um, a pathway for women who want to be in technology-related careers, for, for them to get into the, the, those careers. And so I thought, you know, with, with what I've always loved doing, which is working in nonprofit organizations, this fell in line with what I really love, which is working with mission-driven organizations. And my ability to bring strategic, high-level uh, perspective to women who code finances, accounting needs, uh, building the capacity to manage its finances as the organization continues to grow in size and in complexity helps its members in an in in an indirect way. And so um, I feel like my role is very purposeful for the organization. I totally agree. And I was so excited that you were interested when I reached out. So quick tidbit, you know, I definitely reached out to these on LinkedIn. I was like, are you yes. interested in possibly working with us? Because your background is perfect. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. yes. I was, and I was so excited that you were, you connected me with Elena and we hit it off right away. And, and I love that I didn't have to go through an eight stage uh, interview process and that, you know, you, you pursued me, Elena pursued me. And here I am. I'm just loving this, this work that we do. I'm glad you're here. So tell me um, before Women Who Code, what did your career journey look like? 
Um, my career started in specifically in nonprofit. I, so I'm, I'm just going to start in 2002. Um, in 2002 is when I started um, nonprofit work. Um, I started with a nonprofit in Florida that was focused on human services and social justice for um, youth who were adjudicated in, in the system. And I realized immediately that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to work for organizations that were uh, mission-driven, that were changing um, the lives of underrepresented um, uh, 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 communities. And so um, in 2002, I spent uh, eight years after that working with nonprofit organizations, specifically doing this type of work financial management, accounting operations, um, the uh, business management. And I realized that at some point, maybe 10 years into the work that I was doing that I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing. And I considered myself a subject matter expert in the field of uh, nonprofit management and financial management. And um, as we we headed into a recession, right, in 2007, I started to plan and prepare myself for what could be the worst. And I started my own firm, um, my own consulting firm, my own accounting practice um, on the side so that I can set myself up to be a chief financial officer or, or COO one day. Um, and so for the next 10 years from 2010 uh, up until right now, I have spent those 10 years in making sure that I develop others who are new to accounting or new to financial management, that they can learn what I've learned. Um, so capacity development it has always been really important to me the last 10 years of my career um, in that it's not enough to just know and to be good at what I do, but it's also important to impart and share what I know with others who want to be where I am or who would uh, want to be in the path that I've taken myself into. Um, so I, I can say that for the last 20 years, this is all I've been doing. I literally have been doing financial management with organizations. I don't know anything else. And um, you know, I've tried to, on the side, sell Mary Kay and do other things that might be a little exciting for others to do on the side, but I stick to what I know. What about you, Samaria? What has your journey been like? My journey has been very interesting. So, you know, just kind of starting off, I started in the retail space, you know, getting out of college, um, being fresh out of school, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do because I graduated, my undergrad degree was with a um, therapeutic recreation and uh, community health. So I am completely left for my undergrad. Um, I really wanted to be in the health field because I knew I wanted to help people. But once I did my internship, I realized that it was not for me. Like that space just was not for me. I needed something a little bit more where I could still help people, but I needed to be more on the corporate side. Mm -hmm. So I went into retail just to, for a bridge gap. And I ended up staying in retail for three years. It was the longest three years of my life, but <laughs> it helped me to realize exactly where I wanted to be. And the last year that I was in the actual stores, I realized that I wanted to um, move into HR. I met the HR director at the store. Um, she came down from corporate. She was in Columbus and she um, came down to visit me and she was just like, okay, what are, what are your drivers? What do you want to do? And I'm like, actually, I want to do what you're doing. <laughs> so I was like, I need to transition. So I quickly moved. They under, they heard me loud and clear. And that was a true blessing for me. It was just kind of like, they heard me and they moved me in that uh, career path. I went into recruiting that's how I broke into HR. And from there, I just started to elevate it. I went in, got my um, master's, my MBA, and then a concentration in human resources. And I just continued my career. I was very um, strategic. I moved into corporate um, HR through retail, but at the Home Depot. So it was a transition from clothing retail into like retail at corporate. And I just kind of moved my way through the um, pathway there. And ultimately, it landed me in a role where I could finally figure out all the ins and outs of, of HR. To be honest, my first HR business partner role, I had no idea what I was doing, but I learned. You know, I was very strategic in making connections and getting into different types of clubs and learning about HR. And from there, I became good at what I 
what I did. You know, I really learned my craft. I perfected it. And I know ultimately I wanted to help people. So what better way to help people than to be in human resources, which funds people's lives, impacts their lives daily, you know, getting someone a new job or starting at a new uh, company, it really impacts someone's lives. It impacts their trajectory and what they're doing on a day-to-day basis. So I felt like it was the perfect blend for me. Um, And currently I'm back in school trying to uh, further my education in employment law and human resources risk management, getting a law degree, you know, trying to round out that whole piece. Everyone says I would make a good lawyer. I don't think so as much, but I um, maybe later in my life, I might go back to law school at some point. I have a couple of lawyers in my family and um, it, it, it interests me, especially now being in my program, but it's not um, at the top of my list. I just, I love HR and that's where like you said, I, that's what I'm good at. That's what I know. And I'm going to stick to that piece of it. <laughs> agree, agree. Okay, Lee. So tell me, what has it meant to be a Black woman in leadership, especially in the C-suite level? Oh, my goodness. So when I think about um, being a Black woman in just in a leadership position, I, I think back 2013, um, had my my MBA had had many years of experience doing this, and I was in an all-white space, right? And uh, I was the only Black person in the organization that I worked for, um, and there were 50 employees. I was the only Black person who, who uh, in front of the board members, uh, was present to do a presentation um, of the budget or the financial statements. And I remember not feeling like I was taken serious. I remember feeling like um, their responses and the way that they looked at me as if, regardless of the number of years that I had in experience and, um, and all the hard work that I had put in, in becoming who I was in my career, I wasn't taken serious because of what I looked like. And I do recognize at the time I was you know, early 30, 30 years old or whatever. So I was young also. So it might've been my age. It might've been my sex. It might've been the color of my skin. But I realized uh, quickly that failure, failure was not an option for me. And, and I had to uh, find a way to have a voice um, in the work that, that I was doing to make sure that when I made um, when I was presenting in front of the board and I was in, in all white spaces and I, and I was at round tables within um, the community of other financial directors and financial um, experts that I represented black women um, in a positive way and that I presented myself as someone who was confident in what I knew. So for me being a black woman in, in a leadership position, it means that um, as an underrepresented person in a leadership role in financial management, I had not seen any Black women as CFOs. Um, I started my own firm in 2010, and I gave my t- myself the title principal and chief financial officer, outsourced chief financial officer. And I made sure that when I presented myself to potential clients that I said to them, I know what I'm talking about. I'd love to to work with you. I'd love to have you as a client because what I experienced was that I wasn't taken serious and that it it seemed that my, my youth and my skin color and my sex were a hindrance to being taken serious. And so it's, it has not been easy, but I've always pushed forward in, and making sure that as a young black uh, professional in a financial management and as at the C-suite level, that I represent other um, black women who desire to be in this same role, that they're, they're taken serious and that um, I represent someone who is confident in what I know and, and what I'm capable of. And um, you know, share share your experience with me, Samaria. Has it been as challenging for you being in the C-suite uh, level, or you know, has it been easy for you? So to be honest, you know, I'm I think I'm a little bit earlier in my career, and um, I will admit that I've had a little bit of privilege on the side of um, using my Greek organization 
Um, I am a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated, plug there. But um, using my Greek organization and using my connections to get into places that honestly, I probably would not have been in um, without that affiliation. Um, I have not really had trouble getting into certain rooms, but I will say some people are like, do you belong there? Are you supposed to be here? What, when I tell people that I'm chief people and inclusion officer at Women Who Code, they're like, they're taken aback. And it always reminds me that I am qualified. I am um, able to be in those rooms and I am supposed to be there. Um, so my journey, while I will say that I have been able to move fairly quickly in my career and move into rooms um, that is not quite expected or defying the odds, what some would say, um, I will say that I didn't see many people who looked like me in these roles. And like at the big companies, I've worked with all of the big companies um, in Atlanta, including the Cokes, Bank of America, State Farm. I worked with all of them as my clients um, through Ronstad and helping them to, you know, outsource some of their HR functions. So it was a, um, it was different to see that's where I wanted to be. Um, but I didn't see many people there in those positions. So having the conversation with Elena and Joey, when um, we were talking about transitioning into that C-suite role, I will say I was terrified. I did not think that I was the person for that job um, if it were not for Kim Bennett and Joey, you know, just saying that um, you're qualified, you, you know the role, you know how to do this. Um, I don't know if I would have even put my best foot forward to move into that role. Um, like I said, I, I know HR and, and I know as you progress in your career, it just becomes more of a strategic mindset, which I've always thought in that way. But it was more of the imposter sh syndrome because I hadn't seen people that looked like me yeah. in these spaces. Yeah. So for me, it was more of getting out of my own way and mm -hmm. taking that step into um, a space that I just not, I hadn't seen me. You know, my aunt is a HR professional. She has done well in her career. She was more so in the military side. And I know I always had her to kind of look at, but I was not interested in anything military. <laughs> so yeah. that was just not the route I wanted to go. So it was a very interesting transition for me. Um, but I will say, you know, I'm thankful for where I am now. And, you know, I walk into any board meeting, any room, any meeting, like I do belong there. And like I am the chief people and inclusion officer. Yeah. So. so for you, what was your intentionality around C-suite um, getting into that role? I know you mentioned that you wanted to give yourself that title and move into those spaces and say you were qualified. But was there anything else around that space that you really were intentional about to make sure that you were in a C-suite role for other companies? Um. It really was that, you know, and in 2010, when um, I saw that the housing market crash, I started Lucy's Asset Management thinking I would get away from nonprofit organizations and, and, and go into the field of financial management from the sense of being um, a stockbroker. I thought I was going to be a stockbroker and then the market crashed. And so I went through getting the, the, the CFA uh, uh, Certified financial advisor license, and I started tinkering with the with the market, the stock market, and I realized that there was no coming back right away. And I and if I needed to make money, I needed to get back into what I know, which was nonprofit work. But I still uh, established and maintained uh, Ulysses Asset Management as a consultancy and um, an outsource um, CFO role for organizations that really didn't wanna have someone um, full-time working for them, but needed someone that they can um, uh, uh, partner up with, like being a thought partner um, to organizations and presidents and CEOs. And so um, I started off at using that route and, um, and then started applying for positions that that were director roles, like director of finance, director of finance and operations. And, um, and most of the organizations that I worked with at the, at the time did not have a CFO. They didn't have a C-suite. It was more of executive director and that was it. And so um, 
you know, in, in that sense, the director role was the CFO role, right? I had no one else. I've never had um, another finance or accounting person that I reported to. I've always worked directly with executive directors and, and presidents. So I had always been in that role as being a strategic partner and thought partner to uh, the leaders of the organization. But uh, in the sense of, of being an employee, um, I had not held the title of chief financial officer. I played the role of chief financial officer, but didn't have the title. And so um, I was really intentional about making sure that at some point or another, that that title was the ultimate title in my field that, that I would maintain. And when I think about the future, I've, I've thought, well, maybe a chief officer position might be what I want to do, um, you know, as I continue to grow and, and understand finance and, but not all organizations um, see a need for a COO. And so um, since this is something that I can do with my eyes closed, if you will, uh, um, being a, uh, a person that um, is focused on um, capacity development is really important for my next move, that those who work with me, that I find ways to develop them so that they can grow in their own work and so that they can be promoted. And, and, and if, you know, if it isn't about someone who reports directly to me, I can also develop my team members, my, my colleagues, and in knowing how to manage uh, the finances of their own areas and their programs. And so, um, yeah, it's been intentional, but it, I continue to grow um, uh, laterally. Um, I continue to grow in where I am by, by educating others and by um, teaching others how to be as good in financially managing their own areas. Awesome. Um, would you say, I know you kind of touched on this earlier, but the adversity piece, did you feel like you had any adversity kind of moving into that space? Um, no, I, I don't think it's been uh, a matter of adversity. The challenges has always been, like I said earlier, my age. <laughs> I, I hate to be honest about it, but it's been age, it's been um, um, the fact that I'm female. And then the third challenge has been, you know, a black woman, but putting all of that aside and, and just kind of using the fact that I have the knowledge and the experience and the education to be a great asset to an organization. I don't think that, you know, that's been too much of, of a challenge that has been unbearable. I think if anything, it's made me stronger. It's made me more resilient. And, um, yeah, I, I, and I believe that um, it's only going to get better from here on out. So, yeah. Yeah, great. I literally um, was trying to think of something where I had some adversity. But, you know, the one thing I can come up with as an example is when I transitioned from recruiting into um, being an HR business partner, I, I will never forget the woman who was training me and she was a white um, woman who had been in the business for 40 plus years. Like she literally had did her due diligence. She was smart, smart as a whip. You know, she had it to the T and for the organization, she had been with them for 20 years at the time, but she literally called me on the phone. She was like, I just don't really understand how this is going to work. You don't have the experience. And I was so taken aback. Like, I didn't even know what to say back to her. I just literally said, she's like, but if we, she's like, I know you're smart. So if we just put in the work, we can, we can figure it out. And, but I was just shocked that she actually said that to me. Like, and it was just kind of like, I think she almost said it too, before she realized that she was, okay, you're talking to me. <laughs> and I remember hanging up the phone and I was like, I need to call my mom. And I called my mom like bawling. I was like, mom, what? Like, I cannot believe she just said this to me. Like, obviously they promoted me for a reason. They felt like I could do the job. And that's, my mom just spit that right back to me. She said, you can do it. Don't let anyone tell you differently. And from that moment, you know, I literally just changed my whole tune. I was like, I belong here. And the team, I was the youngest on the team. I was the only black woman. 
on that team and it was a team of about 10 hr business partners youngest only black woman and they literally treated me that way in the beginning until they realized that okay samaria is smart she has built a relationship with her you know the divisions that she's supporting and it really helped me set up like you know after that if i realized i could overcome this i can overcome anything so that would be the one example where i i was very i was just taken aback that she actually said that to me and i just couldn't believe with everything kind of going on in the world and although it wasn't as bad as 2020 but back then when it was going i'm still like you know we're making space for black women and mm-hmm. you have the nerve to tell me that you don't see how this is going to work. I, basically you were telling me, you don't understand how I got this promotion, yeah. but anyways, I'm here. <laughs> so from a DEI space, what do you feel like it means to be a black woman um, in the C-suite? Um, like I said earlier, I I don't know about others. Yeah, I don't know about being male. I don't know about being someone um, you know, of a, a different gender, of a different race. But for a Black woman, it means that failure is not an option. And, uh, and we're literally under a, a microscope. And so our integrity is important. Our um, integrity in the work that we do um, is important because there are others that will follow in our footsteps. And so uh, we have to have integrity about uh, the work that we produce. Um, in my sense, in my, in, as for me, it's financial management. So um, I have to continue to, uh, uh, to, to learn what best practices are out there. Um, I, I do a lot of professional development. One, for, for the license that I have, all the licenses require continuing education, but um, I have to stay on top of my game in the field that I'm in. And so, you know, those old tricks that I, I learned in the past are not good enough. So I have to uh, uh, connect with others. I'm part of National Black MBA Association. So I surround myself with others who, are, who hold an MBA in financial management. I surround myself with other women who are doing extraordinary work in organizations, whether it be nonprofit or for-profit. Um, I think that it's important that we continue to grow um, as as Black women in leadership roles, that we don't just um, sit and be comfortable in just arriving, if you will, but find ways to continue to grow and also mentor others. You know, whatever you've been through and and you've, uh, you know, uh, succeeded in, in the work that you've done, find others that you can mentor and share with them um, all the good and the bad, you know, n- not keep them in the dark, but share with them, you know, these are, you know, uh, th- this is the route that I took and, you know, um, and I'd love to share with you how to get to where I am. So I, I think that that's important. Who about you? Yeah, I definitely agree. I think um, piggybacking first off the mentorship, I think that it is so important for me to give back um, in the sense of the generations that are coming up, but also my peers, because if I'm being honest, I have a few friends that are in the HR space, but they all where I am per se in my career um, and helping them. Like I, I have been helping my friends, you know, negotiate offers, just things of that nature, like telling them exactly what they should um, be looking for and explaining to them, you know, how to transition from a generalist to an HR business partner, um, how to uh, switch within the HR field, because a lot of people don't realize that HR has so many different functions. Mm-hmm. It's a minimum of seven functions. It's just who you ask, how many functions we have. Um, but like, you know, some people transitioning from the benefit space to recruiting, from recruiting to being in the generalist space, it's just, it's different. So my idea of giving back is really starting within my natural circle and my natural family um, and really helping them and then branching out into outside of my um, immediate circle and giving back, you know, speaking at events. And I, I really have a passion for the children. So um, definitely uh, not only my nieces and nephews, but outside of them, you know, going and teaching them about, because most people just fall into HR. We don't start into HR, you know, a lot of people do not go to school for HR. You later typically, you know, graduate um, programs and things of that nature, but it's not as common 
for people to go into, you know, business and ma uh, major in HR and undergrad. It's just not as common. So um, I just teaching people about our space and how we can continue to groom um, those is very key. And just thinking of it as a Black woman, I just want to echo the piece of you saying that we have to be, you know, very um, intentional. We have to have plenty of integrity and just come show up to work. I feel like 10 steps ahead of anyone. Um, it's not, I don't get to show up and just be um, regular Samaria that I show up with my friends. And I hate to say it that way, but it's like, I really do have to be on my game and know what I'm talking about, you know, continue to um, continue my education. As you can see, I'm in school now. And I, I have a foundation of education in our family. Like my dad preached it over and over again before he passed. It was just kind of like, no one can take your education away from you. So that's just something that I hold true to myself um, in the sense of continuing education. But my certifications, you know, um, I am in an elite group of having a HR certification within our field because a lot of people do not hold our certifications, but, and they're not required, but it, it does tend to set you apart. And as you continue to move up the ladder, it is something that, you know, you invest in to set you apart from the rest of the um, people out there. So as you said, you know, just being two steps ahead is something as a black woman in any space, no matter the field, science, whatever, um, you do have to continue to be on your game. And we, we should expect that of all people. You know, you want people to be ahead of, um, ahead of the curve, punch above their weight. But, you know, I feel like being a Black woman, it's expected for us to do everything, you know, and not only just be on top of the world in our careers, but also in our personal lives. Like we need to be ahead, you know, take care of the home as well as take care of, you know, the dinner table, whatever it is. But as Black women, we tend to take all of that on and forget that, you know, we have to put ourselves first, um, essentially in that entire space. But I can go on, on and on about that. But being a Black woman in the corporate nonprofit uh, space and for-profit is just making sure that I am on my P's and Q's. Um, in layman's terms, so. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. So if we had to leave our listeners with a pro tip, what would be your pro tip um, in reference to um, being in the C-suite and elevating your career? The tip that I would leave with the listeners is be intentional about your career path. Where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? And, um, you know, if, if you're like me and you're in the finance, financial space and, you know, maybe you're a senior accountant and there's a CFO um, that is, you know, who you report to, um, let your CFO know, hey, teach me how to take your job. <laughs> teach me how to do your job. And, you know, and if, if it's a... Um, manager that is that cares about capacity development they will show you how to get there they will put you on that path and no one um, who is an intentional manager should feel threatened by you know a supervisee saying hey teach me how to get to that to that stage um, that is something that i've always been intentional about when it comes to those who report to me, that I find out what it is that they want to do and help them get there, even if it might take, you know, three, four, five years. And so um, be intentional about what your career path looks like and plan it out. You know, if, you know, if you want to one day be a CFO, the first stage is junior accountant, then, you know, senior accountant, controller, and then eventually you'll get there. But be intentional, map it out, find out what the education um, requirements are around getting to that to that role. Um, find out the 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 networks that you need to join so that you um, find where job openings are. Um, talk to your managers about uh, professional development opportunities, but be intentional about where you want to go. I love that. Intentional was my word a couple years ago, and I feel like that is it's like you have to be intentional about everything that you do. And I, I echo that. And um, if I had to give a pro tip, I think I'm going to steal something that you said previously and it's surrounding yourselves with people who can affirm you and you know that 
motivate you to do better. I could not live this life without my girlfriends and my group chat. I think that is like my lifeline, honestly. They are my best friends from college. Um, and then I have some, po I have another group chat, post friends from college, uh, after college. So my, my group, my network um, are everything to me. And I have people not only in my family, but outside of my family, my chosen family that really affirm me and help me, you know, celebrate my wins. I had friends who celebrated when I uh, was promoted into the uh, C-suite. Um, they, they threw me a dinner. We had a great time. It was amazing. Like we were able to fellowship and it was nothing but black women in the room. And it was one of the most amazing times of my life. So I genuinely say the people around you mean everything. So surround yourself with the people that you can learn from as well as grow with um, and celebrate with and cry with all of that. So I think your, your surroundings are 110% important. So yeah, make sure that you subscribe to our podcast and check out our YouTube channel um, for more Black History Month content and technical and career related videos. We hope that you enjoyed talking with us today. Um, anything that you would like to add, Lee? <laughs> I, I really hope that um, the information that we shared with everyone was beneficial and it really helps, um, you know, every, all their listeners to really be intentional about their career path. In the Women Who Code Career Nath segment of our show, you'll hear real-world advice from people who are currently working in the technology industry and personally know the steps needed to succeed. These talks will include both career advice as well as a look at the industry itself and its practices. In this segment of the Women Who Code podcast, you'll hear from Lauren Murphy, who talks about the power of representation and hearing diverse tech career stories. Lauren, um, you've had a really interesting career. Um, you're currently a database associate at America Society, and you're also um, a web consulate um, editor, which is your own company. Can you kind of walk us through what your career path has been like up to this point? Okay, um, I've, I've kind of jumped around quite a bit, um, but I've always kind of really been um, passionate about learning. And it's like, even though I'm um, a database associate right now, um, in a way I'm, I'm an administrator because we're switching to a Salesforce-based platform. So I'm in the process of getting certified as well. And um, also outside of that, I've been like a New York City chapter organizer for um, Write, Speak, Code. And that's something I'm very passionate about. Awesome. Um, and with that, it sounds like you're in a lot of different communities. So how have you been able to build a network of advocates and supporters in your career? And how has that helped you with your success professionally? Well, um, funny enough, I feel like a large percentage of it actually came from joining Twitter um, several years ago because it, I did not know, but it does have a very vibrant um, tech community on there. So as I was attending conferences and different um, networking events in New York City, it would always become this thing where it's like, I, do we follow each other on Twitter? I think I, you, you look kind of familiar, you know? So um, it's kind of allowed me to keep in touch with people, especially now that we're um, kind of remote due to the pandemic. Definitely. And were you remote before the pandemic or has that been a change because of the pandemic? It's been a change due to the pandemic, but I'm actually really loving it. And like, I, I could do this full time, you know, after the pandemic ends. Awesome. Um, so you've been in tech for a minute now. So what is your experience been like as a woman? Well, it's it's been interesting because um, in the IT department where I work, I, I am the only woman there, only um, black woman uh, there of, um, outside of, um, I think the web team as well, they have um, 
an Afro-Latina that works there. Um, it, it's definitely been interesting, but at the same time, I feel like um, it's, it's sort of in my blood because my mom was um, like a IT manager of a trading floor for a number of years before um, she ended up um, starting her own business. So I've, I've had these women around me and just kind of have seen them excel and mm -hmm. I could always go to them for advice. Also my aunt as well, who was a network engineer before she retired. So I, I felt largely comfortable that it's something I can do because of the women in my life that showed that it was possible. Definitely, yeah, being able to see someone else that looks like you and has your life experience and done it before is, yeah, is really huge. So that's amazing you were able to have that. Um, so a big part of just being in tech, especially as a woman is, you deal with a lot of fear, whether that's fear of just the unknown or imposter syndrome. Is that something you've experienced before? And if so, how have you learned to navigate it? Um, it, it definitely is something that I, I even go through all the time, even though it's like I'm kind of a lead in this um, data migration to this new software. And it's like my um, supervisor and IT director have kind of entrusted me with this role. And even then I kind of struggle with, I, I think I'm doing this, I'm doing a great job and um, there have been no complaints, but sometimes I internally second guess myself, but mm -hmm. I do my best not to kind of show that um, during meetings. And I generally just kind of um, work through that in therapy sessions that I've had over the years because therapy is very important and I'm a huge advocate of that. Definitely. And with that, with the pandemic, and there's just there's so much change happening. Do you have any tips for how to take care of yourself during all this and to keep your, your own cup full? Oh, yes. Um, I was an avid runner, and I still go for my runs um, in the morning when I can if I don't have like an early meeting or something to go to. And uh, another thing as well that's been very helpful is just kind of figuring out a way at home, even if you're in a tiny apartment like I am, to kind of separate your workspace from your relaxation space, whatever it may be, whether it be a spot where you go to knit or watch a movie or something like that. So what I've ended up doing is, um, there's a small room that I'm in right now. And I'm like, that's my workspace. And that's a space that I say, okay, when I have lunch, I, I won't eat in there because that's my workspace. So just kind of trying to set these boundaries so that um, you don't feel like you're 100% in work mode and sort of um, force yourself to kind of take a breath and step away. So. I think it's very important to kind of find that space wherever it may be, even if you're in a small apartment in New York, um, just to kind of separate yourself from that, even if it's just for an hour or 30 minutes. Definitely. That's really, really great advice. Thank you for sharing that. Is there a woman uh, in tech, whether in history or modern day, that has inspired you? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I would say Nitya, who um, she's, she's worked at a number of places, I believe she's in Microsoft right now. She's really inspired me in terms of being an event organizer, just because um, she just kind of shows that, um, you know, a way to use your massive network to um, just bring people together for an event, even if it's a day long one. And I'd also say um, Talisha as well. Um, she's been doing amazing work um, in the tech community also. And I believe she recently was on, um, uh, I think a Forbes woman cover for tech. And I was just like, I was so excited to see her face there because I know, um, how much work she's done in the community. And it's just amazing to see um, where both of them have gone. Definitely, both really, really great choices. 
Um, do you have any other advice for women in tech? Um, I, I would say that um, going to events is definitely um, something I started doing because originally I was completely, I felt I was somewhat removed from it um, job-wise um, working in uh, nonprofits because you often don't meet a lot of women in tech that work at nonprofits um, in a technical kind of capacity. So I would say just um, going to these events and talking to people about how they got there because everyone has a very unique story and um, amazing advice or if they don't know the answer for you that may work they may know someone in their network that says oh I I know someone that has um, some experience in data science if that's your career path or where you're looking to go would you like um, me to get in touch with that person that can link you both up so I I definitely think that um, it's like whether you're an introvert, which I am, um, going to these events is definitely um, the most, well, I would say you can get the most enriching ex experience from going to these events and speaking to people there. Definitely. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you for your time. This has been really insightful, a lot of great advice. Thank you for being here. Thank you and have a wonderful day. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. These talks are designed to both introduce advanced subjects and provide insight into the work being done in these fields. We'll be featuring Keisha Williams, AWS Training Architect at a cloud guru, she discusses methods to use machine learning to battle COVID and promote public health. So what's this learning algorithm? So during training, the learning algorithm is going to make multiple passes over the data. And like I mentioned, it's going to store the trends and patterns found in this model. During training, several passes are made over the data. So that means several models are actually created during this training process. And you can think about it like poor performing models are tossed out. And at the end of the training process, you have this model um, that is well performing. And so this process continues basically for the number of epochs or epochs, if you're in London, <laughs> that you have defined and you set that as a hyperparameter. And we talked about hyperparameters uh, one of the last few weeks, and those are just configuration options to your training job. And so within this learning algorithm, there are actually two components of the learning algorithm. The first is a loss function, and the second is an optimization technique. So the loss function, it's, you can think of it like the penalty. So the penalty that's incurred when the model guesses incorrectly. And then there's this optimization technique that really seeks to minimize loss. So during this training process, all of this feedback from the loss function, from the optimization technique, that feedback is used to produce a better, uh, a better model. And there are several optimization techniques out there. AWS uses what's called stochastic gradient descent, SGD. And like I said, it's, it's an optimization technique. And when we talk about learning algorithms, out of the box, SageMaker currently has 17 learning algorithms. I've listed just a few of the more popular ones here. And what AWS has done, they have actually provided optimized versions of these algorithms. And you can access these algorithms in two ways. First, through the AWS Management Console, whenever you create a training job um, through the SageMaker Console. 
or you can access these learning algorithms by calling the associated API from your Jupyter notebook. Um, so for image classification, that's one popular um, learning algorithm that AWS has optimized and it takes an image and it provides a label. They also have k-means, and that is a form of clustering, and it's a learning algorithm that finds discrete groupings within data. And then there's linear learner. That one can answer binary yes-no questions. It can provide uh, numeric values or class labels. Then they also have object detection, and that classifies objects in images. They also have random cut forests, and that is used to detect anomalies in data. And blazing text, that's a text classification, and people use that for sentiment analysis. So if you remember, I believe it was either the first or second workshop where I went through a few examples, and I talked about my public safety model, that actually used AWS's linear learner. Uh, learning algorithm. And I talked to you about the emotion detection that use the image classification. And the last example that I shared with you um, was my movie recommendation engine that used k-means, but not the AWS version of k-means. It used um, the scikit-learn version. So let's talk about some of the scikit learning algorithms, scikit-learn learning algorithms that we're going to talk about today. And the three um, that I mentioned to you last week, and I did give you homework to go and read up on these three learning algorithms. So I hope that you did that. And these three, naive Bayes, random forest, and logistic regression, these algorithms solve uh, what we call classification problems. So this is where you want to know which class or group an observation belongs to. And this typically includes two classes, like the binary question, the yes, no answer, or the multi-class classification where you're selecting from one of many. And so naive Bayes, that is a family of algorithms. And so when we think about, I guess, all of the different learning algorithms out there, they all come with pros and cons. And so it's important for you to really understand the pros and cons of these different algorithms and when you would want to choose one over the other. And so, for example, with naive phase, it's good for real-time predictions and when you have really large data sets. Um, it doesn't really work well when you don't have diverse data. So if, if you have missing values, it doesn't perform well. And that was my experience. So the data that we cleaned up last week, I actually created a machine learning model using that data. So I sent that data through the training process using these three learning algorithms. And with Naive Bayes, the accuracy score was only 40%, which is not good at all. And then I looked at Random Forest, and this uses decision trees um, to make a prediction. And it really consists of a large number of individual decision trees. And a pro of this one, it works well for imbalanced data sets and it handles missing data really well. Um, the downside for this learning algorithm is sometimes it's hard to understand why a certain decision was made. It's like a, a black box. And that was pretty much my experience. So when I used um, this learning algorithm to train my model, the accuracy score was at 81%. Um, so it's the exact same data set that I used in the naive base example. And 81% is it's better than 40%. I don't know if it's gr that great, but it's, it's better than 40. And then logistic regression, that actually uses an equation to predict uh, an outcome or to make the prediction. So it's good because it's easy to implement. There's not a lot of hyperparameter tuning needed. Um, it doesn't work well on image data. And there are a lot of other algorithms that can outperform this one. And so the model that I created had an 82% accuracy score. So pretty close to the random forest. Okay, so now let's talk about this accuracy score and the confusion matrix. 
Remember I told you that during the training process, the model, there are multiple models produced and each model is evaluated. And so the way that works, each model has an accuracy score and this thing called a confusion matrix. Um, and I just always joke and say this basically tells me how confused my model is when it's when it's time to generate a prediction. But it's, it's actually how we evaluate model performance. And really it gives us an idea of the number of predictions our model is getting right versus the errors that it's making. And so there are actually four pieces to this confusion matrix. So there are four boxes here. And so the first one is what's called a true positive. So this is where during the evaluation process, the observation or that row or that data set, the answer is positive. And the model actually predicted it to be positive. So it's right, it's a true positive. Then there's this false positive. So this is where the observation is negative but the model predicted it to be positive. So it's, it's a wrong answer. Next, there's what's called the false negative. So the observation is positive, but the model predicted it to be negative. And then lastly, we have true negatives. So this is where the observation is negative and the model predicted it to be negative. So it was right. And this is what it looks like in the Jupyter Notebook. And so if you notice at the very top here, that shows the accuracy score. And then also it shows the confusion matrix. So you see that 55, that is what's considered the true positive. The 52, that's the false negative. The eight, that's the false positive. And the 13, that's the true negative. And I've also at the bottom, you'll see a classification report. And that's also helpful in, in just understanding or evaluating your model. And so this model, this example, this model is only right half of the time, which is not good, <laughs> not good at all. So you have generated this model. It's gone through the training process. It's a well-performing model, you know, a model that is right more than half of the time. And so you have your model and you want to host it. So SageMaker allows you to take this model and really put it in a production environment. So you're productionizing your model and you're making your model available to any system to call through an API endpoint. And so through the SageMaker interface, you can actually take this model artifact and basically put a URL or an API endpoint on top of it. And then you can access that endpoint through Postman or a tool like Postman or really any other application. So think about it like this. Once your model is hosted, any application that can make an HTTP call can get a prediction from your model. And that is where you, that's really where the power comes in um, because now you're actually able to integrate this model into various different systems that need a prediction. And so the process of actually calling out to the model sending in, in the data and getting a prediction or a response back is called inference. And that is when you use the model really to do what it was made for to provide you a certain prediction. So now let's look at the code. Now this is the same link from last week. The only difference is the notebook. So whenever you pull the, the code for this week, make sure you pull this workshop three notebook. So now let me jump to the code. Okay. So last week we ended on splitting the data and we did a 70-30 split. So remember 70% for training, 30% for testing. Here, let's look at using the naive Bayes learning algorithm to generate a model. 
So in these first few cells here, cell 125, 126, 127, and 128, I'm basically just cleaning up the data and printing it out. You know, I like to double check everything. So let me scroll down to get to the next cell. Scroll, scroll, almost there. There we go. So cell 129. So in cell 129, I'm using scikit-learn and I'm creating here the naive Bayes model object. And then I'm calling this fit function and I'm passing in the training data. So this is where you actually start the training process. So now I have this model, NB underscore model. And now I'm going to take that model and I'm just predicting the values using the test set. So that 30% of data. And so I'm importing metrics from scikit-learn and then I'm printing out the uh, metric. So for example, in this case, I'm printing out the accuracy score. And that's what I told you here, the accuracy score is 40%. Not that great. Next, I'm using the random forest that I told you about. It uses a set of decision trees to provide a prediction. So I'm importing that from scikit-learn, the random forest classifier. And just like before, I'm creating that um, model object and then I'm training the model. And then here I am passing in the test data to the model and I'm getting the, the metrics. So here in this case, when testing that model, it has an accuracy score of 81%. So next, I'm printing out the confusion matrix that I told you about, and then also this classification report. And so here you see this confusion matrix. So we see the true positives, the false positives, the false negatives, and the true negatives. And then basically following that same pattern for logistic regression, from scikit-learn, I'm importing that, and then I'm creating the model object, and then I'm calling the fit function to train the model. And then I'm passing in the testing data, and then I'm printing out the accuracy score, the confusion matrix, and the classification report. So there we have, we, we've used three different learning algorithms to create three different models, all with different accuracy scores. And so for the inference, this is where we actually use the model to generate a prediction. I chose the random forest model. And so what I'm doing here, I'm basically saving that random forest model. And when you run this code, you see that the model artifact is saved into your Python notebook. And then you could take that artifact and host it through SageMaker. And I do want to note that, you know, there is a cost to just using SageMaker in general. It's a pretty expensive service. That's why it's important for you guys to get the $200 credit. But there is also a cost to actually hosting the model. So if you host your model and you, you leave it available through an API endpoint, I believe the charges, you may see hourly charges. So that's just something to keep in mind as you're developing your final solution for the hackathon. So here I've saved the model. And I'm just right now just loading the model again. And now I'm testing it on data, um, not the testing data. So I have this data set here that I've loaded, that's also loaded in GitLab. And so I have this data set, this truncated data set. It does include some data from the original CSV file and then some other um, additional patient records. And so you'll see um, I'm printing out the data here, just like 
what we did last week when we were preparing the data and getting it ready for the training process. So here I'm loading the data into this data frame and then I'm printing, printing out the data frame. And it's just a few records, so it's a total of 25 records. And then just like last week, I'm cleaning up the column names, removing spaces, just to make it easier to read and work with and use. And then here I'm just printing it out again to make sure that the column names actually changed. And you notice here, I actually have the result, right? The negative and positive result. That's the value that we're trying to predict. So we don't need it in the data set. And so I'm removing it. And then here I'm double checking, like I like to do to make sure it's gone. <laughs> then I'm printing out the shape, so 25 records. And now here, this is where I'm actually using the model and I'm calling the predict function and I'm passing in the data, oops, I'm passing in the data and then I get the predictions back. So for each of these, I see the predictions. So that is it. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate and comment.